to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Um, I want to give a shout out today to some authors whose books were particularly noteworthy. I don't know if you know we have a book review staff. Their Facebook page is called Book Review Crew. You can go there and find book reviews for every genre imaginable. But this week, I want to give a shout out to Joe Badal, Sheldon Green, Joshua Harris, Jeff Hess, Shannon Kirk, who was on earlier today, Sheila Lowe, Proof of Life is her book. You really need to get that. She's um, a forensic handwriting specialist also. Wendy Byrne, Barb Warner-Dean, and Laurie Boris. Um, I also want to give a special thank you to my guest today, Trey Barker, who writes crime fiction. He, um, he starts his bio by telling everyone, hey, Trey ain't such a bad guy. And that's a quote from an inmate charged with murder. So murderers, thieves, junkies, those who batter and assault others, rapists, fraudsters, con men, general wax. These are not the only type of people we meet in, in Trey's fiction, but some of the people he deals with in the world on a daily basis because he is a patrol sergeant in north central Illinois. We're going to hear a little bit more about that. But in his book world, both real and fictional, people are also lovers and heroes, the divine and the profane, and they're wonderful and wonderfully average. I know that Trey was born in Texas. He's a big fan of Texas Nights Live, I think is what it's called. It was a book and then a television show. And he also is a huge music buff. He's a drummer. So I'm very thrilled to welcome to Authors on the Air, Trey Barker, crime fiction author. Hi, Trey. Welcome. Hi, Pam. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, I, I know that you are. some of your books are published from down and out, and you have uh, other books published by other people, but um, let's talk about your new book because it is such, has such an interesting title. Um, can, we, can we talk about that, please? Absolutely. So go ahead and tell listeners about your book. Well, the new book is called The Unknowing. Mm-hmm. And it is a uh, much more nuanced and paced and layered book than I've done before. It's a murder mystery. A detective gets called out for a 17-year-old who's found in a cornfield, and we go from there. The title actually comes from uh, 16th century mysticism, and it involves the cloud of knowing and unknowing and what somebody can figure out and not figure out. And uh, I think it was particularly apt in this particular case because this is a relatively tortured detective. Mm-hmm. So we spend, a, we spend a bunch of the book trying to help him get through his cloud of unknowing. So it's an interesting concept. But, 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 I mean, as a detective yourself or an investigator yourself, um, you really don't know anything until you start your investigation, Correct. You know very little. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, well, you know there's a, a crime. 
there's a crime, and that's what you know. Right. Right? Right. That's when you first get the call, that's pretty much all you know. Now, I have kind of a weird dual role in my job. I'm an investigator in some things, um, but I'm also a a road patrolman in other things. So Mm -hmm. I get to see both sides of the coin. And as an investigator, when you first get the call, you know absolutely nothing. But if the patrolman has done his job right, by the time you get to the call, you know a whole lot of stuff. Wow. You know what kind of crime it was and who it happened to. And a lot of times you know why and you know the how, even though you have to have the forensics people come and do their thing. You know, sure. Um, if, if the patrolman does things right, assuming that they've got access to the right information, because sometimes you have no idea. You know, a really mundane example, just quickly, is here in rural Illinois, we have farmers who put their gear away in November, and they don't look at it again until March or April. Well, Joe wow. is looking for scrap metal to sell. They pop in. They don't know when it happened. Sometime in the past six months, my scrap metal got stolen. You know, you don't know anything. Wow. So. Wow. And, and, you know, it's just the reverse here in, in South Florida. The growing season is opposite. And um, it's funny you should mention farm equipment because um, I know a lot of the farmers when I used to live in Miami because we'd go down to um, when they had you pick fields and they have a farmer's market down there in Homestead. Oh, right. And, and uh, it's a really big operation down there. And interestingly enough, whenever – uh, equipment would be stolen. It would be left in the cornfields, and so the farmers would hire a helicopter to go ahead and sweep over the cornfields. Of course, now with drones, they have an easier way to go ahead and find their farm equipment. You know, no mountains here. I mean, the only thing you can do is dump it in the ocean, which I don't think is going right. to happen, or in a river someplace. And that farm equipment's pretty big. So. I know that you, you were a journalist for a while, and um, I was. And um, do you think that's where your love of writing came from, or have you always been, or considered yourself a writer? It it, it was the, actually the other way around. I wanted to be a writer from the time I was in the seventh grade, and first read wow. Stephen King's novel, The Shining. Wow. Because what, what he does in room 213, room 224, I can't remember the room number, with the dead woman in the bathtub, I got done reading that chapter, and I thought, this is what I want to do. It was that amazingly well written. So wow. I became a journalist so that I could learn to write. I mean, I'd already been writing really crappy short stories um, in high school. I was failing most of my classes, so I decided to write instead. Um, <laughs> but I became a, I became a journalist because I thought, hey – these people will teach me how to write. You know, it'd be perfect. And I think that's part of the place I get. I have a very generally a very stripped down style, um, very bare bones, very hard boiled. And I think that comes from journalism, where there's no extra yeah. room. You know. Right. So. Yeah, you've got to get the, the love of writing where, came where, first, and, and when. journalism came second to teach me how to write. Oh well. I was just going to say, you've got to get that who, what, where, why, and when, and how all in the first paragraph. And if in the first two sentences, yep. if you can, if you're a journalist, you have a limited amount of column inches to work with. So you're right. It probably was Absolutely. a good primer for you to, to write, like you said, bare bones. And I find um, most new crime fiction is very bare bones. And I like it like that. I, I think it's a, um, it's an interesting genre. It's an interesting way to read. Um, you're not prettying anything up. You're not describing, you know, the, how 
the emerald green grass, and and that I think is important <laughs> right. for, for 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 crime fiction writers, especially who are not writing these um, big opus magnus, you know, books uh, right. of, of crime right. fiction. You're well, writing a of, very different of, style than than like Don Winslow is writing. You know, your style is very different. Right, right. Well, the style in the unknowing is very different. My earlier novels and the series I'm working on right now go back mm-hmm. very much to to Don Winslow's Savages. I mean, that they're not Savages was an inspiration for it, but that same sort of really stripped down style. Sure, sure. Part of that yeah. is I used to teach report writing at the police academy here in the states, and what I always told the guys was that, and I use guys collectively, men and women. What sure. I told them in their reports was, I don't give a fuck about half the details that you want to put in there. Nobody cares that right. you parked your car, you got out of the car, you walked up to the door, you knocked on the door, they opened the door, and you said whatever. Nobody cares about that. Right, right, right. right. Unless it's material right. to the case, nobody cares. So let your reader's knowledge and assumptions work for you. If, if you don't need to describe driving down the road, then don't fucking do it. Nobody cares. Exactly. You, know, you don't exactly. need to spend three pages describing how the yellow ribbon in the middle of the gray snake, blah, 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 blah. Who cares? Right. Unless it's material to the case or the it's plot. It's germane to the case. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Elmore Leonard used to say, don't write what people won't read. So, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Exactly. But, exactly. You know, Jeffrey Deaver tells me all the time, economy of words. You use an economy of words. And so yep. um, I, I've, I've, that's so in almost at an interstitial level for me right now when I read and I read a lot um, I I want to kind of blow past all that stuff like describing the the grass or like you said the the yellow ribbons on the snake you know I, I don't care about that unless that is telling me that this is a poisonous snake you know <laughs> it's about the only exactly, reason exactly. it's a speed bump I think for readers um, it takes you out of the action whether your action is in movement on the part of your your uh, your characters, or movement in dialogue, whatever it is, I, I think it pulls you out of that. I want to be engaged all the time in a book, so I think you've got the right idea about it, Trey. It just makes sense to me. Um, thank you for it the book, for by the way. Uh, I appreciate it. You know, I I have the book. Um, I, it was sent to me by Down and Out. I appreciate that very much. Um, tell me, so when did you decide to go from being a journalist? To being a cop, to being a writer, somewhere along there, you started <laughs> writing fiction, and um, you know because you're writing nonfiction in your in your day job, your non-writing job. So, right, right. well, what was the term remember, for you? I wrote from junior high on, so I was right. always doing writing. Right. Became a journalist because I wanted to learn how to write. When I got up here to Northern Illinois. Um, I was working for a newspaper, and I was covering the crime beat, and it was all very interesting. I got to know the sheriff fairly well, and he said to me one day, hey, I need a jailer. Do you want a job that actually has a pension and some health insurance? And I'm like, huh, 36 years old, no pension, no health benefits. Maybe that's something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so it I is. sort of fell into it. it. Yeah, you know, I hate to say that, but New, the New York Times had not come knocking on my door to tell me I was number one on the New York Times bestseller list at all so far. So I thought, okay, maybe someday I'm going to make a million dollars. If I don't, I don't give a shit. I just want to be right. able to do my thing. And right. I'm going to need a pension, and I'm going to need some health care and all that stuff. So I sort of fell into it, into law enforcement. But then, of course, when I started calling my family members and told them, my mom was like, 
oh, there's a big shock. I said, what are you talking about? I've always been kind of anti-cop. She says, no, 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 no. You're anti-authoritarian. You're not anti-cop. You grew up around cops. You've always going to it has always been inevitable that you were going to be one. You just didn't realize really? it. I thought, okay. She huh. wasn't surprised at all. In fact, none of my friends no were. No kidding. Really? They said, you're a, so you're a type A con- control personality, you know, not to the degree of being an abusive or anything, but right. just that's right. the way it is. I just said, yeah, but I'm also not even, I'm not yeah. even close to being a rule follower. You know, I hate <sighs> when people tell me what to do. So I don't. It's the dichotomy it's in, of, of me being a it police officer. It must be instinctual then. It's instinctual for you if you're if you're not generally a real a rule follower. Um, I have a friend who, if you say, um, "Would you please do this or this or this," you know, and and ask for something, he says, "No, no." It sounds too much <laughs> like telling me what to do, and I say, "Okay, um, I'm going to send you a letter then." You know. And, Ask for your funny. permission. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I know. Funny. Um, I want to talk about this book called Three Chalupas, Rice Soda, and a Kimber 45. Guns, ta- okay. Guns and Tacos, book four. Because um, that's the newest one that's posted on Amazon. So tell me about this book and why it's book four. Well, Michael Bracken and I, and I'm assuming you know Michael. He's just an yes. amazing guy and a phenomenal he and Temple, his wife, and my wife Kathy and I were at dinner last year at Batricon, and we just got to talking about Mexican food. And somebody said something about guns and tacos, and Michael and I, almost at the exact same moment, were like, that's the title of a book, because that's just a great title. <laughs> so we kind of threw it around, and we just were kind of joking. And before the night was over, and I, I suspect there were at least a couple of glasses of whiskey behind us when we got there. Sure. We had come up with this uh, episodic It wouldn't be Batricon. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So we came up with the so, idea. We came up with the, the conceit for Guns and Tacos. Eric uh, Campbell at Down and Out loved it. He gave us the go-ahead. We each wrote an episode, and we had Gary Phillips and a few others. Uh, Frank wrote wrote an episode. Mine just happened to be number four, and for that, uh, I tapped in to, uh, to some stuff I had dealt with before in my investigator's job. So. Interesting. It was it was actually a little tough to write because the timeline was weird, but mostly uh-huh. it was tough to write because I was really tapping into online child sexual exploitation, which is what I investigate. Right. You know, so the material was right there at the front of my brain, but it's ugly material to access. And I'm you know? sure you really don't want to have to access it um, on a, even on the on your best days, but in in search of a good plot line um you certainly took advantage of it um you've gotten lots of good feedback from it so uh, i think that's great it's a small book um it's like yeah it's only about fifteen thousand words yeah maybe 65 pages or something yeah um i like it i like it it's it's those are fun kind of you know, those are lunchtime reads for me that uh i can blow through real fast and and get like a quick jolt of of um you know my crime fiction my noir crime fiction out of the way <laughs> so right, right. Um, yeah. so are you inspired at all by the people that you meet in your cop job i am um i'm inspired by everybody i meet to one degree or another but obviously my clients in my day job are right. usually not always but usually some degree of socially dysfunctional Mm-hmm. Because you have to you have to look at my job. If you're 
People don't call me when they're having a good day. They don't call me when they won the fucking lottery. Right? Right. They call me when they're in crisis. So right. all I ever deal with are people who are in crisis. Right. And believe it or not, the mopes and jamokes that I deal with, you can't imagine, Pam, it would, your hair would fall out if you could ever understand exactly how many times a bad guy calls us about another bad guy being mean to him. <laughs> I've had more oh. dealers call me oh, and no. say, hey, so-and-so just stole my stash. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Did you just call me for this? You know, so what? you can't help but be inspired by that kind of lunacy. That It is you know, lunacy. Just, and I have heard that, that this is a thing that happens, and it still cracks me up. I um, I had one of my friends on social media who I actually met at VoucherCon last year um, is a 911 dispatcher. As a matter of fact, she's retiring. Uh-huh. Uh, she can't take it anymore. And she said, yeah. you know, people would call her when the cable's out and, um, yep. you know, all kinds of crazy stuff that, that – it is amazing to me. Now, I've always had a big case of hero worship for the police officers that helped me when I was a victim of a violent crime. And um, uh, so I, I have a healthy respect for anyone doing that job, as I have worked in police departments before. But it's always mind-boggling to me to hear people badmouth law enforcement, yet 911 is the first thing they call when they have a situation. Yep. And they need help with, and so it's it, and then they're confrontational to you as well, aren't they? Yes, yes, they Even are. The victims, they are. Yeah. Nine one one is nine one one is absolutely the first place people call because I believe they've been conditioned to if you have a problem, call nine one one. Right. Nobody ever says right. if you have a criminal problem, call nine one one. They just say if you have a problem. So people call us and say, Hey, did you know it's snowing? Uh, yeah, I have a window. <laughs> hey, did you know the electricity's out? Uh, yeah, my TV's off. You know, whatever it might be. Right. And they are you very know, confrontational. They are. They're, you know? they're, they kind of get, get ugly. I mean, I've, I've heard some of yes. the calls, and, and they're, they're a little goofy. Do you have a constant stream of story ideas running around in your head, Trey? Not the way I did 20 years ago when I was young and virile and good-looking and had long hair and everything. Um, now I'm old and decrepit and broke back and, you know, um, the ideas I have now, they're still constant, but they're much more involved than they used to be. I started really? off writing horror. I was inspired uh-huh. by Steve King and I would have right. a new sto- a short story idea once a day. And wow. as I got older, the, the, those kinds of, but it was a one line idea. You know, it was a three page story. It was more a vignette than anything. So as I get sure. older, the ideas still happen. But they happen they're, – they're more complicated, like the, the uh, precipitant incident in The Unknowing, the death of this little girl, was not any one particular thing. But when I moved to north-central Illinois, there was a string of three or four cases where dead teenage girls had been found in cornfields, not connected, all unconnected, but the same sort of you – know, I would never have thought of dumping a body in a cornfield, but I also grew up in West Texas where there are right. no cornfields. Right. So, right. you know, I had these three or four stories, new stories kind of jumble around in my head for a while, and it came out in this idea. So it's a much more complicated idea than I would have had 20 years ago. So the answer is yes, sort of, and no, sort of. <laughs> well, so sense. when you have – it does. When you have these complicated ideas that come into your head, are do you remember them or do you write them down? Do you make a note on your phone? You know, do you leave a call message for yourself? How do you hold on to that 
or is it just strong enough that it stays there until you can get in front of your your computer? All of the above, but mostly I don't trust that I'm going to remember it. So I either uh, it's a hell of a thing, isn't my... it, Trey? When you get older, yeah. it's a hell of a thing because you've got so many other things <laughs> going on. A great story idea is going down the toilet because you can't remember it. I just yep, get it. Exactly right. <laughs> so I, you know, I make notes on my phone. Uh, I use Evernote, which I just sync to my computer. So whenever I sit down to write, there they are. Or yep. I will send a text message to myself. One of the two. Really? You know, and that's usually, a great idea. Uh, uh, two or maybe three word text is enough for me to remember the whole thing or enough for me to remember, okay, this is, this is what I was reading when I had that idea. I was reading, you know, one of the daytime deputies reports. So I'll go back and mm-hmm. read that report again and remember exactly what it was. I thought. So do you have the, this? I'm sorry, go ahead. It so used I was just to say, be, I used kept... to keep a handwritten notebook. And before that, I actually believed that I would remember all the ideas, which was just, Nonsense, right? arrogance Literally. on my part. I didn't remember right. hardly any of them. You know, five thousand ideas a day. There so. you go. So when you're um, when you have this kind of stream of consciousness thing going on with your story idea, do you almost write the story in your head first, or do you just take the idea, that idea when it's in front of you and sit down and write the story, or you know, how does it work for you? For me. I may have – it works different ways, but mostly I don't do any in-my-head writing before I sit down at the computer. I, really? The journey of discovery is everything for me. Now, like in the new book, The Unknowing, I knew exactly what the opening scene was. I knew exactly what a particular middle scene was going to be, and I knew where I wanted it to end. But beyond that, I wasn't entirely sure. But that's just the way I do it. I had a friend in Denver when I lived sure. there. She writes uh, science fiction novels, and her outlines would be 150 pages long. Yeah. So by the time uh, she I know wrote, she, yeah. you know, she knew everything that was going on. That would drive me insane. I would eat my gun if I had to do that. I, I know that there are people who do who do a half of a book outline. Yeah. And it's it's mind-boggling to me that you're writing your book twice, but – you know, I guess it's exactly. like um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess for me, I kind of liken it to a roadmap. If I'm going on a trip, you know, if I'm driving to Illinois from Florida, I certainly want a map. <clears throat> Pardon me, <clears throat> I'm not going to wing it. But um, uh, but to be that detailed, I want to at least know I can get on the get off the exits and go see something else along the way. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so so yep, that's, that's how I uh, exactly how so, I look at it. So when you look back at your earlier writing that you were doing seriously when you were published and you look where you are now, what changes do you see? Oh, that's a hell of a question. Um, Amazingly enough, generally the writing style is still the same, still bare bones, stripped down. Mm -hmm. But I think I, in terms of the technical part of it, I think I'm able to pack more into those few words so they hit a little harder. But I think mostly, and a lot of this has come from law enforcement, which I've been doing now for almost 20 years, mm-hmm. um, I think a much deeper understanding of the human condition, as corn-pone and cliched as that sounds. Because in my day job, there are very – almost everything is gray. So right. you get, a, I think, a, a much more broad-based understanding of why people do certain things or whatever the case may be. 
I think sure. that may be the biggest change in my writing since I started working this particular job. It's interesting. Um, do you look back at your early work and say, I wish I could do this over or I want to do it over? Or do you say, huh, okay, not bad. I'm doing it better now. Um, I've never never thought, oh, I wish I could redo this or redo that. I, In fact, I don't read a whole lot of my work once it's done and out in the world. I move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. But the things I have gone back and read, I think, is a good example. I wrote a novel 20 years ago. Eric was interested in publishing it. We won't, both went back and looked at it. I just couldn't let him publish it because it was so young. Right. Um, and we, we talked about pulling it apart and redoing it, and I said, you know what, it would just be easier to rewrite the whole thing because right. my writing word choices and technique is so different now. So in that case, it was, I thought, wow, I wish I had done this, wish I had done that, but it wasn't something that I was going to go back and redo. Cause and this redo. Is where I am uh-huh. now. Yeah, yeah, you, you uh, just understand that you're in a different place. There are some cases where um, writers will reissue books that are, like you said, 20 years old, and give mm-hmm. it a facelift and maybe edit it up or clean it up a little bit. And um, it feels like a new book, but it isn't. It's it's one that's been updated. So I just wonder yeah. if that w- interests you. Apparently not. Like no. you said, once it's no, out in, never... in the world, you're done. Nope, I would never give it a facelift. We, Eric and I did talk for a very short amount of time on this novel that was 20 years old about publishing it with some sort of caveat on the cover that said, you know, his Barker's first mystery novel or, you know, lost for 20 years right. or something like that to let people know, okay, this is going to be older. This is going to be different. Um, right. And who knows? That may happen someday. But I will never – never say never, says Romeo yeah. Boyd. But right. I will probably never update a book, even if the technology is old, even if the whatever is old, because that's where I was at that time. And that's at the, the time. technology was sure. at the time. Yeah. Sure. That makes that sense to me. That to me seems like a snapshot. Perfect example. I thought he was a complete total moron for changing the scene in E.T. where the FBI agent's guns turned into radios. Now, that's his movie. That's his prerogative. He can do whatever he wants, and God knows the man is accomplished enough that he can do what anything sure. he wants. But I would never have done that. And I know he did it for political reasons, for his own political views, and that's fine, but I right. wouldn't do that. To me, that's a snapshot. Right. This is where I was. Interesting. Um, when you have a chance to read, who do you like to read? Uh, James Lee Burke is at the very top of the list. Uh, you know, it's so funny you said that. I have a, his his webpage on on my computer right now. I was scrolling through it when um, right before I called you, and um, Jim usually comes on my show every January when his new book comes out. He is one really? of my favorite people. Yes, he he's one of my favorite people in the world. He's so smart. He's so erudite. Oh. He's so knowledgeable that I actually have to get guest hosts now to talk to him because I'd rather listen to him and learn something than try to talk. You know, I don't want to do the interview. Yeah. I want to listen to him. He's just a magnificent man. He really is. I, I love his whole family. He has a daughter named Pam who, who works with him. And, you know, his daughter, Al Fair, of course, writes Al crime Fair, fiction yeah. too. Um, but he's a lovely man. And I was just hoping that he had a new book coming out, but there was nothing on his website. So, you know, he might be 
he might be uh, yeah. waiting, take, skipping a year, which he does occasionally. But the last two, I, the last three books, he's been on every January. He's one of my favorite That's people. Uh, you mentioned well, Stephen I, King I earlier. I love Michael Connelly. Um, yeah. I, I've known, did you read The Night Mike Fire? King. I'm sorry. Did, did, did you read The Night Fire, his new book? No, I haven't gotten to it yet. It's, I think, three down oh. on my stack right now. Oh my God! I read it. I read it as soon as the galley came. I read it in one day. I just I turned off all my wow everything electronic. Well, I read about five hundred books a year, so I'm a very fast reader. But oh my God, it was brilliant. And all three characters are in there. It's it's Harry, it's Mickey, and Renee. And there are some really big surprises in there too. Some big revelations. Very cool. You may want to move that up to the top of the list. Who else do you like? Yeah, sounds like it. (laughs) Uh, Um, Obviously, I love the old classics. Um, I love Elmore Leonard. I love Raymond Chandler. I love all that stuff. Yeah. But I'm really high on uh, Frank right now. His new book, Charlie 316, is absolutely one of the most stunning police procedurals I have read in probably 10 years. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to talk to him then. I'm going to have to give my friend Frank a call. And and get his book. Huh. Yeah, it's That's it's really stunningly good. Um, I have a recommendation for you, and um, I'll right. I'll see if I can. I want you to read Steve Cavanaugh's book called Thirteen. Um, the serial killer is not on trial; he's on the jury. And it mm. is such – it is um, – it's probably my favorite book, even more than Mike Conley's book and, and uh, Preston and Charles Pendergast's books. Um, it is probably my favorite book this year, and I had the opportunity to meet and interview Steve um, at Capital Crime in London. Oh, my God, the book is stunning in, in its complexity, and it's, it's so unique. And you would appreciate this book. Your investigative skills would be – your spidey skills would be tingling, you know, to, to figure it out. It's that good. I'm going to see if I can't get a book sent to you, a copy sent to you. Um, I might have That'd an extra lovely. one, and if I do, I'll send it to you. Yeah, I highly recommend that book. Um, it's at, it's at so far my favorite least, one this year. If you year. would send me uh, or text me or something an email with the, the title in it, yeah, I'll go again, ahead and have I a book might sent to forget you. it. Yeah, okay, I'd appreciate it. It's, it's, it's really that. a fantastic book. Um, so – your next book, The Unknowing, will be, com- will be coming out when? Uh, November 11th. I think it's actually She's... available for pre-order now, but the actual street date is November 11th. Just, you know, I'm going to have to turn around in two weeks and have you come back so we can talk Absolutely. about that book, too. <laughs> there you go. I'd be totally down for go. that. I will come on your show anytime you want. Uh, you don't even have Aww. to pay for the whiskey. I'll bring my own whiskey. There you go. Listen, what a deal. Bring me some rum while you're at it or a bottle of wine, and, and we're, we'll call go. it even. Um, if you had your chance to interview someone, who would you want to interview? You know what? It would probably be Elmore Leonard or James Lee Burke, yeah. one of the two. But yeah. I, I, there's something – well, okay, I say that, um, but also – You can't, can't interview oh. Elmore Leonard, I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, James Lee Burke yeah. doesn't have a book out, so he's not doing interviews right now. Who else would you like to talk to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there are a bunch of classic writers I'd like to interview. There's a guy named Will Nathaniel Harbin who wrote his first book in 1889, his last book in 1920. He was a Southern Georgia realist and uh, just terrible books, full of dialect and very hard to read, uh, terrible, terrible. But he was a bestseller at the time. 
And he uh, is my great, 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 five great grandfather. Really? Uh, born in 1858 or something. And he worked in theater for a while, just like I did. He lived in, in uh, Texas for a while. Obviously, I grew up in Texas. A lot of weird connections. But I would like to talk to him because he wrote a book. Uh, he wrote a lot of sort of cliched books. He wrote a, a utopian book. Uh, the the 1920s science fiction where you know somebody gets on a boat or a balloon and they crash on the crash on the deserted island that is the perfect utopia. Uh, he wrote right. one of those. He wrote a, a Sherlock Holmes style mystery that is just not very good at all. But he also wrote a book called White Marie. Now this was his first book, 1889, and it was about miscegenation and it was banned in most of the country. And I would wow. love to pick open his brain about what made a Georgia writer who was born before the Civil War write a book about a black and white couple. Because I, I just find that that sort of thing just fascinating because of who he was and his times and yeah. you know, when he grew yeah. up and all that. Well, I can get a lot of authors on this show, Trey, but I'm sorry to tell you I can't get your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. <laughs> I can do a lot of things, but Damn. summoning the dead is not one of them. Um, You mentioned earlier uh, that Stephen King, you read The Shining. I I have to tell you, and, you know, the 40 countries we're broadcasting to, I've never read a Stephen King book. Never. Really? No, never. I am scared to death of horror. Uh, It just um, (laughs) – I don't even like the old Bella Lugosi and Vincent Price black and white movies. I'm I'm petrified of those things. They scare the dickens out of me. I will hear – if I were to read a horror novel or even slightly horror – I will hear every creak in this condo. I will hear I'm certain someone's breaking in or there's something slithering out of the bathroom. I'm I'm positive. So um, I'm a big wuss when That's it comes funny. to that. But I will read across genre. You know, I read a lot of different books and a lot of different genres, but but horror is not one I can swallow. I, if you like it a lot, we have a show called Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. They have those people from The Walking Dead and, you know, all the horror mm, movies, all, gotcha. all those people, you know, Chris Rice and Anne Rice, they all go on that show. Um, they're funny. They're a funny co-writing couple um, uh, who yeah, are not an actual are. couple. Uh, who are not an actual yeah. couple, but they are number one in horror. I have to say that. So, um, before we go, I've taken up so much of your time, and I so appreciate you giving it to me. Will you please tell everyone where we can find you on the web and on social media? Um, my website is treyrbarker.com. I'm on Facebook. It's treyrbarker author page. I, I don't know exactly what the URL is. Uh, Twitter at Trey R. Barker. Everything is Trey R. Barker. So just okay. look at Trey R. Barker and you're going to find it. There you go. And um, your book is available on November 11, but it might be available for pre-order and that's from down and out books. Um, you can check them out at down and Eric Campbell is the publisher and Lance Wright is his assistant. Um, they are a, just a fine house for doing noir crime fiction. And um I really appreciate you staying with me for this long tray and and taking off a little time. You're right. The city did not burn down, did it? No, it did not. It did not. And you even dressed up for the interview. I want to tell you how nice you look. I did. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) I don't put on a uniform for just anybody. I know. I know. I'm, I'm really impressed. (laughs) 
This is Trey R. Barker. The new book is called In Knowing, and you can get it on online stores just about now. It is released officially on November 11th. Trey, thank you so much for being with me. And listeners, I appreciate you coming with me tonight and joining the ride. Remember, you can hear us on podcast sites everywhere. And if you want to go to our archive, it's in soundcloud.com forward slash authors on the air. Thanks so much, Trey. Thank you so much, listeners. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see y'all later. Bye. (laughs) 